patients are sometimes ringing up NHS 111 saying, I think I need a test and being told they don't because they don't have the classical symptoms. And then they ring me and I think, but I think you probably do thinking about the new symptoms. So how am I going to get you a test? So that's one issue. Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, recording this on Tuesday, 2nd February 2021. As we acknowledge a year of this pandemic, as Europe descends into diplomatic wars over vaccine supply, the UK ramps up COVID testing to try to quash community spread of the South African variant. Hospitals continue to struggle with large numbers of COVID patients, and we sense the dawning realisation that lockdown, or something like it, will be with us for some time to come. So, lots to discuss, and with me today on the line are Matt Morgan. Hi, Matt. Hi, my name is Matt Morgan. I'm an intensive care consultant in Cardiff. Partha Carl. Hi, Partha. I'm a consultant in diabetes in Portsmouth. And Helen Salisbury. Hi, I'm Helen. I'm a GP in Oxford. So here we are, a year in, hard to believe. I wonder um, how your views of all of this have changed over the year. Do you feel that we have learned a lot? I mean, obviously a lot scientifically, clinically. What other ways have things changed for you, Partha? I think, you know, it's been some sort of journey. I mean, uh, you know, as I'm sure for everyone, I've never faced anything like this. And it's just been the whole uncertainty around it. I think the science has been great. You know, to have vaccines this quickly is something which is unimaginable, I think. I think seeing the research around steroids has been brilliant. I think seeing, and I think, you know, I have been really enthused by how much people can do, although probably there'll be a payback of that. But I think personally speaking, there has been also been a lot of disappointment, I would say is probably the word. I think feeling of being hurt a little bit um, because, you know, uh, as you know, all right blogs for the BMJ, I very proudly said in March that we should all trust our leaders and stand behind them. And I got a lot of flack for that saying, you know, I think it really hurts that you know, I don't feel myself in that position a year later. I found it really difficult, you know, and I know, you know, those guys are amazing guys. They are, right? This is not a personal attack on them. Very difficult jobs that all the people in the medical clinical people do. But somehow I feel, I don't know, they could have done better. I don't know. I mean, probably they may not have been able to, but I just feel this personal twinge of, I, I suspect it hurts more when you put faith in people so much. And I did. I did put a lot of faith in, you know, the Chris Bitty and Patrick Balance and Van Tam. I did put a lot of faith in them. And, you know, and I'm standing here so many months away from my parents and I really, really would like to go and visit them. They're, they're there in India and it just, it may be just a personal thing, but I just feel a little bit more hurt and disappointed probably one year down the line. Matt? Yeah, I think it's you almost need time to realise how different things are and how different you are. You know, this time last year, I was flying to Canada. I was doing an exchange programme with a university out there and there were people in the airport wearing masks that we would you know, talk about and, and think, oh, you know, why are they wearing masks? And now, of course, it'd be the opposite. If there was somebody not wearing a mask, you would be talking about them. Uh, and I think one thing I've realised is how amazingly adaptable 
humans are, and that's not to belittle how difficult it is. You know, I'm homeschooling at the minute. It's noisy. My wife's a teacher. She's trying to teach. Life is tough. But to see the difference in that one year that we have now been in lockdown for so long, lives are so radically different, and yet we are still here. We are putting one foot in front of the other, uh, despite the length of that. You know, that's pretty remarkable for me, actually, the tenacity of humanity, despite the difficulties. Helen? Difficult, really, to know. I suppose, personally, I've become even more aware of my own good fortune in that um, I have been able to continue to go to work and do a job that I enjoy, even though it's changed, um, and I haven't lost anything. Um, and I know that is so much unlike other people in, in the country and in the world. And I guess it's that becoming even more acutely aware of inequalities in our society, even more than I was to start with. I suppose the other thing is becoming more aware of the importance of, of leadership and what difference it does make. There's sometimes this idea that, well, it doesn't really matter who's the top because you've got a machine that works, whether that's in a hospital or whether that's in a government, the thing kind of trundles on and you can change the figurehead and, and, and it sort of carries on, sometimes a bit better, sometimes a bit worse. But when you look around the world and you see just these huge differences in what's happened to a country and a population on, you know, how many people have, have died and suffered. So dependent on what the people at the top are saying and doing. I think I've become that much more interested in um, what is good leadership and how does it work. Um, so I don't know that I've learned that, but I've become more acutely aware of it. And what about closer to home, the leadership that we're seeing, you know, for example, in your uh, trusts, in your hospitals, in your CCGs? Are, are you very aware of your, you know, I don't want to say you know, good and bad, but are you aware of leaders uh, or lack of it there? Uh, I think locally we're really lucky, actually. Um, I, it always feels as if the leaders at the local level have our back and are trying really, really hard to make things work for, in my instance, for, for, for primary care, for GPs um, in the location and to try and reach a sensible solution that will work for us and, and most importantly, for our patients. Uh, and sometimes that means they're interpreting things, that, directives that come from on high in ways that are, are just sensible and allowing bending the rules in various ways to help us get the job done. So actually, I'm yeah, I'm full of admiration for our local leaders. Matt, how are things, how are things in your hospital? Uh, busy still, I guess? Still incredibly busy. I think probably the phrase is better, but bad. Um, better because there are lower numbers of COVID patients coming in, um, but still bad because the numbers are still, if you look at history, still extraordinarily high. And as we've said so many times before, it's not just about numbers of patients, numbers of beds. It's about who to care for them. And this is the time where that long tail of sickness and staff absence and other things is really coming home to roost. Uh, and that's especially with some of the new 
advice about self-isolation, actually, that we'll talk about later, perhaps. And, and that's going to be a really tricky point for the health service. We feel like we're in this kind of limbo area where we don't quite know what's going to happen in weeks and months. We are hopeful with vaccine rollout and numbers declining. But I'm almost more worried about what comes next. Uh, and the things that will come next is a huge amount of important work to catch up on and probably a huge amount of questions being asked, whether that's through inquiries, through complaints, through other means. And that's stressful, actually. And that's stressful for staff who are already tired, uh, exhausted because of clinical work. So you fear what both patients with COVID and perhaps patients without COVID who, who, whose families will be saying, you know, what more could have been done or different? Yeah, I think that's inevitable. And, and that's important in many ways. You know, families should be able to ask those questions. Uh, but what I'm unsure of is the right people to respond to them. Uh, you know, we've had key cases in the past where the local context of a hospital hasn't been considered in the actions of an individual. Uh, and this is the absolute design of that. You know, when decisions have been made which were hard to talk about in retrospect, I'm sure the reason for that would be the incredible local context of dealing with the pandemic. And will people have been filling out incident forms for every one of those at the end of a 17-hour shift when they've stayed four hours behind? No, they probably wouldn't have been, is the truth. Uh, and in the cold light of assessing paperwork, uh, those facts are often lost. So I don't quite know how to marry those two. The importance of feedback and uh, the rights and justice for families and for patients is absolutely key. But how do you balance that uh, against looking at the context and supporting staff? How are things at your end, Partha? I mean, you're, you're still obviously dealing with a large patient load uh, of COVID plus your diabetes patients. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a, I mean, uh, a mixture of things. Um, there is a, in the, in the, on the wards, it's still busy, as Matt says, you know, patient numbers are there, but they seem to be much more static. The, the, the fall off the plateau is much, much more slower than last time. And that could be due to the fact that we've got, you know, use of dexamethasone, this, that, everything going on, etc., which is good and people are surviving. I think uh, personally, I found very tough and I think I saw that and we're doing ward rounds is the amount of fear people have. Um, and, you know, I give examples of, you know, people who are on their side rooms on their own, you know, no family. They've read enough, you know, they know enough about what's going on. They're on high flow oxygen. And those simple words about, you know, you, are you sure I'm going to be OK? You can see they're scared, so scared. And you need their family around them. You need a nursing staff around them or a doctor to speak to them and they can't. And, you know, that personal touch is also difficult. You know, you're behind a you know face shield and with your mask on. It's it's not normal. You know, you know, normally, you know, I face those scenarios where, you know, people would be even in end of life or, you know, and you still would be able to sit down with them and hold their hands and, you know, have a chat and. And it's so difficult. You can't do that nowadays. And uh, that that's tough. Um, so that's one. And I think from a specialty point of view, um, I, I, I'm always fascinated by people who live with chronic disease. I think we underestimate what people live with a lot because there is a lot of you know stoical element to it. 
But what I have picked up um, this week was the there was a the, the, there was a degree of joy also in people's voices because they had their first vaccine and they were like, you know what, you know, got my second date and my GP has said you'll get it in April and you know I'm really looking forward to it. Which sort of nicely relates to what Matt said. I don't think people quite know what's coming after that because there is a belief out there, two vaccines, we're done, we're all going to be out and we're all going to be holidaying and partying. It's not going to be that. And I think that's where the narrative needs to be. You know, we are in this massive drive at the moment with vaccines and the narrative being, right, 10 million, 12 million, 14 million, and it sounds like that's it, that's the way out. It's not. And I think we need to be careful about the messaging because the disappointment that will come to that with a lot of people who are expecting just to go and see their friends and go back to normal after having two shots is not as straightforward. So I think there's a lot of things in the mix at the moment. But, you know, I think you don't want to take away hope as well from people. But the, what, there's nothing worse than false hope, as I say. So I think we just need... We've done so many false dawns already in a year. So we just need to be careful about that sort of side of things. But yeah, that, that's the feedback. Can I... Uh, we'll get on to vaccines in a minute. Obviously, really, really wonderful news on, on one scale. But as you say, um, we don't want to uh, be... be um, unrealistic about the future. But I just wanted to ask Matt about this um, story about people being frightened to be ventilated, which I can entirely understand. Is that, a, is that a real thing that you're facing or your colleagues are facing, people refusing ventilation? Yeah, there's been a viral video shared this week about some relatives wanting to take out one of their family members because they were worried, well, because of lots of reasons, actually, because of misinformation, partially, and because of the worry about ventilators causing harm. You know, this is the classic association, not causation discussion in medicine. And it's true, people on ventilators have a higher mortality rate with COVID than those not on ventilators. In this second wave, it may be as high as 50, 60%, maybe even more. Um, But that's not because of the ventilator. That's because you are pulling out a group of people who have failed all the treatments that work. And ultimately, in intensive care, we don't have secret treatments that we keep to ourselves or we don't have things like the film Cocoon uh, where we can you know, magically make people come back to life. The only treatments we have in intensive care are three. They are all the normal treatments you already have on the ward, whether it's steroids or antibiotics or anything else. Uh, we have nursing care and really good one-to-one nursing care, which is probably the most important thing we have. And the third thing we have is time. You know, ventilators just give you time for your own body or the treatments we already have to work. Those are the only things we have. So it's understandable people associate being on a ventilator with, with, with dying. And sadly, that's true. It's not causative, although you do have to choose the right people at the right time, of course. Uh, so that's where that's come from, really. Uh, and I think these concepts are difficult. They're complex. They're complex for us in medicine. So it's no surprise they're complex for the public who see these high rates and therefore associate going to ICU with dying, for example. You know, the truth is not going to ICU when you need to is the thing which will cause death, uh, not the other way around. And Helen, in primary care, you're seeing rates falling, I guess, uh, probably quite precipitately. Does that, does that you know, give everyone a, a great sense of, of hope? And also, we're hearing about 
a, a new understanding of, of, of the symptoms related to the new variant, which must make things a bit more complicated. You know, what symptoms should you respond to and how, how should you? Yes, there's a lot there. I mean, in terms of rates falling, it's really very noticeable. So um, a, one of my jobs, um, when we take it in turns, to just go through everybody's results, because not every doctor's there every day. So you just need to check, is there anything that needs action today? Um, and doing that a couple of weeks ago, there were probably dozens of notifications of new diagnoses, of new positive swabs, um, which we would follow up, um, sometimes just with a text message in the younger people, but with a phone call in the older people just to check people were okay. Um, and this week, I did it yesterday, and there was not a single new positive swab that, that I saw yesterday, which is just remarkable in the, the, the speed of that decline. And I think the other thing that I have feel cheerful about is that I've got several families who um, sometimes after quite long conversations with relatives, the older members of those families came and got their vaccinations. Um, and some of them are sort of on the housebound list uh, in that they it's great, very difficult to come to the surgery. But nevertheless, after a conversation, their relatives brought them to the surgery and they were vaccinated. And now in several of those families, various other members of the families have been ill or are ill. But the people I'd be most worried about, um, who are the people in their 80s, have remained well. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, um, it's just anecdote, it's not data. But I have this, this, this real feeling that those elderly, vulnerable people in my population really have been protected because their families are ill, but they're not. And that's, that's a re that's a very good feeling. Um, you, you kind of, you know about vaccines, but then you experience the effect. And I feel I'm experiencing the effect now in my patients, which is great. The second thing you're talking about is how do you know whether it's COVID or not? And that's, that's really tough at the moment because the, the, symptoms that might be COVID, particularly with the newer variants, are getting wider and wider again. And we're hearing that there's more often it's going to be traditional cold and flu type symptoms like sore throat. Um, and as a GP, certainly in our area, we, we, you have to decide when you talk to someone on the phone, um, is this likely to be coronavirus? Does this person need a test? Does this person sound ill enough that they need to be assessed face to face. And if that, that last thing, where should that happen? Um, and there's two problems at the moment for us. One is that patients are sometimes ringing up NHS 111 saying, I think I need a test and being told they don't because they don't have the classical symptoms. And then they ring me and I think, but I think you probably do thinking about the new symptoms. So how am I going to get you a test? So that's one issue. And the other is just what proportion of our work can we pass on to the hot clinics, the clinics that are meant to be set up for people with um, coronavirus infections? Because if it's every single infective symptom, and it pretty much seems to be now, it can be diarrhea, it can be skin rashes, it can be sore throats. Actually, we, we might overload those services quite quickly. As I say, the only saving grace is that the numbers are coming down as the symptoms broaden. So I hope we'll keep above water. 
Matt, you mentioned um, the new advice about self-isolation and that causing confusion. Yeah, well, I think that there's understandably a lot of concern about nosocomial transmission in hospitals and, you know, staff who could be a vector for that. Staff sickness is already an issue. And the last thing you need is to take out, you know, 20% of a workforce in a ward or an intensive care or something else that would be a disaster. So quite a lot of the sickness policies are very uh, broad and require you to self-isolate for a period after contact with positive cases or even contacts with cases who may be negative but have classical symptoms for example so you know i think this will be tough to manage in the long term in the nhs and there's no simple solution you do have to be pragmatic at the same time um, and things like lateral flow and point of care testing won't necessarily help those cases where there's a incubation period for example so yeah i think certainly dealing with staff sickness in busy in hospital areas and and in primary care will probably be an increasing story over the next few months. So let's talk about vaccines. Um, It's an extraordinary story. There's been all the hoo-ha about Europe and uh, Britain suddenly looking like it's, the UK looking like it's got this really right you know it's one of those those things we have to absolutely celebrate Kate Bingham turns out to have done a storming job uh, with the procurement of the vaccines um, and uh, you know the numbers are impressive I think we're over 10 million now and heading up for 10 million people vaccinated um, I gather Helen still had her three Partha's had you've had you one a two and Matt's had one but is about to have another have I got that right Matt yeah spot on <laughs> I haven't had a vaccine yet. I don't qualify. Um, But is it the sense that people, you know, that has already boosted morale in hospitals? Um, You're seeing pretty much all your colleagues vaccinated by now. Is that fair? But Helen, I know you have concerns about the mass vaccination centres and the confusion that that's been causing in primary care. Yes. um, it's, It's very interesting. In December, uh, GPs were asked to sign up to uh, a fairly um, open-ended bit of contract which says we will give vaccines, we'll be prepared to give vaccines 12 hours a day, seven days a week. We're up for it. And so we did. Um, And actually, that's not what's happened. Um, And now... Um, there's been a few supply issues, uh, but even in a good week, we can the, the number of vaccines we get we can use in a working day, which is which is fine. And actually, it doesn't take very much time to vaccinate 800 people. You can quite easily do that in a working day. Um, but actually, even last week we didn't have any vaccine at all, and we know that quite a lot of the vaccine is going to these mass vaccination centres. And there's a little bit of confusion happening because patients are now getting letters inviting them to go to the mass vaccination centre and often that letter arrives pretty much at the same time as the message from the general practice saying please come to ours and the and the patients really don't know which they should be saying yes to um or or or, or how many doses is it maybe maybe they should go to both um and the other thing is that it's actually apparently it's quite hard to cancel the mass vac centres once you've committed to it because you can't do that online you have to do that over the phone um 
and a i'm kind of a bit <clears throat> bit annoyed that it's causing this extra work for and confusion for our patients um and and secondly it seems like a recipe for wasting vaccine um if people might accept appointments in two different places because they don't know which one they should do and then they won't turn up for one um we most in most areas actually the gps were on it and i still feel um i don't understand why these really big centers were set up and keep being set up so there is a question about how good the surveillance is um after people are having the vaccine and what research questions we have on the ground about the vaccine partha what what would be your key questions you're hoping that are being researched as we speak so two key questions which is um the, the purpose of the vaccine is twofold protect the most vulnerable and ensure transmission is going down and my simple question is are we doing that or not that's the simplest way i can put it so the first one is about and there's a lot of debate about people of ethnic origin etc vaccine uptake etc i want to see who it's getting to and what it's doing does it do what it says on the tin protect these people from coming into hospital but the bigger one will be which is actually the way out of this because otherwise we'll be locked down forever is does it stop transmission that's the two key now the initial data from israel which they're talking about with all the caveats attached with it is saying that after two doses it's dropped to something really 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 low and that is incredibly encouraging and my question and my ask of the system is according to all these fantastic graphs that we keep saying we are i think number 2 just behind israel as far as number of vaccines given percentage of population covered it's time we should get some data out now i think it, it, there will be nothing more reassuring for people to see that it's doing what it says on the tin because at the moment i think admissions and everything is going down because of the lockdown now how much of that is then becomes a part of the vaccine process that's the thing that needs to be peeled apart because what happens when you lift lockdown the idea would be with the vaccines in play you are getting the protection from spread and illness but is it and i think that's the two research questions i want to know is it protecting the most vulnerable is it stopping transmission that's the key mad yeah exactly the same questions for uh, the same reasons you know breaking that chain of transmission is critical and it can also maybe then influence on what we can or cannot do safely you know we already know that uh, changing our behavior can allow us to do some things such as work inside with masks on well if this breaks the chain of transmission maybe that will allow us to modify our behavior in other good ways i've said before i think all interventions in medicine should be evidence based or evidence generating uh, and hopefully the vaccine will be both it will be evidence based from the data from israel and other places and hopefully we are collecting the data in the uk on our great vaccine rollout to answer these questions to make sure it is evidence based as best it can be helen um two things one is we also need to be collecting the data about <clears throat> vaccine regimes does it make a difference if you have 12 weeks rather than 3 weeks between your dose of Pfizer vaccine we sh- we ought to be getting that data fairly soon um because there are a cohort who've had two doses close together not very many of them but they do exist um and then there's going to be another lot who have a much longer gap can we tell does does that show 
in the in the um in the numbers of people who get ill in those prospective groups um so i'm sure somebody must be collecting that data i, I really hope they are because that's clearly really really important that we find out whether the jcvi called this right i suppose the other thing which is not as easy to collect but i think is really really important is a bit more qualitative data about what it is that stops people having the vaccine when they're offered it what is it that persuades people who were initially reluctant to come forward and have the vaccine so that we can get our communication right and our strategies to try and encourage people who may be uncertain to come and be protected um, and and i hope that that qualitative work particularly in in maybe particular minority groups who have a lower uptake of that vaccine. I hope that works being done so that we can maximise the protection that, that everybody gets um, against this virus. Um, just just one point to bring up about vaccines, really. And, uh, you know, I agree, it seems like the UK is doing great things if you want to look at it in a league table sense. But I think League tables for preventative care like vaccination in a pandemic is not a particularly helpful way to go. We know this pandemic will only be over when it's over everywhere. The WHO this week has said that the world is at risk of a catastrophic moral failure, were the words it used. And some low middle income countries like Guinea have just given 25 doses of vaccine, one of which was to the president, in fact. So this huge disparity between high-income wealth countries rolling out amazing programmes and where actually a lot of suffering will happen and where new variants will come from, of course, our low-middle-income countries. So I think that's something that needs to be addressed. And I don't quite know the mechanism through which that can be adequately resourced. Uh, yeah, so... You know, I would echo, I mean, I was going to actually say what Matt said. I mean, we are in this, just a reflection of where we are in the world, isn't it? We have such a nationalistic sort of fervor. And it's not UK based only, if I'm very honest. I see, I have conversations with my colleagues and friends in India, and it's all very, very similar. It's my country is doing really well. And you're going like, it's a global pandemic. This is not a race. But that's the way we have done the narrative from day one. It's always been a race. And you go like, you know, it's a bit like an, an analogy, not quite the right analogy. It's a bit like when we get sent reports about diabetes leak tables and you're sitting there going like, that means nothing. So, for example, people, and I'll give you one very good example. Uh, so sometimes we're asked, you know what, Arthur, the amputation reads need to be better. And I'm like, compared to who? What, are, what is your benchmark? So then they would give you an example of a country which doesn't collect national data. They picked it from five centers and you're sitting there, well, I, you can't compare that. But that's what we're having right now. We don't know about data processes in other countries. We don't know how it's collected. We don't know what's going on, you know, but we are where we are. And I think the vaccine is going through exactly the same thing. We have learned very little because all we are doing is comparing rather than going like, okay, what's good practice? Let's try and bring it wherever we're not doing. So we're not doing any of that. I was interested in what Partha was saying about international comparisons and um, and I think they are sometimes useful because it's very useful to look across at somewhere else and say, okay, so it looks as if this place has 
is doing better than we are, what can we learn? Um, and certainly, I think in this in in the pandemic, there there's really quite different results in different countries. And the question is, what's different? Are they counting it differently, or are there actually fewer bodies? And I think actually in lots of places there are fewer bodies and then it behoves us to find out why that is what did they do that we didn't do and i suppose it's a question of what spirit these international comparisons come in i i have to say i feel a bit icky about those um pictures i've seen with the union jack and you know eight million vaccines or whatever and this kind of blowing our own trumpet isn't britain wonderful i mean britain may be wonderful in lots of ways but I don't know that saying we've done lot, managed to give lots of vaccines is is because you know it, it, to see that as a feature of Britishness is is necessarily a good thing. Um, but and, and and I totally get that 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 this has to be a worldwide operation because if we just vaccinated the UK, then we're going to come a cropper really really quickly. But nevertheless that looking abroad and comparing results can be really useful if it is a if it comes from a spirit of learning and improvement rather than bragging and i sometimes wonder what the motivation is the the, the way in which the oxford vaccine the astrazeneca vaccine was designed was very much wasn't it in, intended to be a vaccine for the world um, and uh, you know, done at cost and um, tested in many different countries, and not just in the UK. So, I mean, the spirit was there, and and it, I feel it is an enormous shame if it becomes this sort of jingoistic, you know, the, the UK will be generous with, uh, you know, that seems to be already to be using language that is is the wrong kind of language. We we ought to be absolutely seeing this as a enlightened self interest on the one hand that if we don't do this, we're we're, we're stuffed as a world, you know that. I don't think the original um, makers of the vaccine w had any enlightened self-interest thing about it. They they were genuinely needing, wanting to protect the whole world. And that has so much been the driving force behind the, the vaccine developers here. Yeah, um, you can't avoid being hijacked by other people's agendas, though. Looking forward then, um... You know, we, we are in this slight sense of Groundhog Day. It was Groundhog Day yesterday, I think, or the day before. Uh, you know, Today, actually. Oh, is it today second. it's Groundhog Day? We should Every celebrate. Every second Groundhog Day in the United States we of America. We should celebrate Groundhog Day. Yes. Um, my favourite film. Uh, what 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 then? Looking forward, um, the next few weeks. What what will you be doing um, to maintain your personal energy, your team's energies? Um, and, you know, ensuring that your patients uh, have, have that necessary optimism and hope that will take them through this. Matt? Oh, wow. Uh, big life-affirming question. Well, 1st of February and 2nd of February is always a big day for me. It's my birthday at the end of January, so we've got off that Christmas slump. The chocolates have finally exited the cupboards. Uh, I've got a newfound sense for uh, health and vitality, so that will last uh, at least a week. And the other project which is keeping um, me a bit interested and busy at the minute is we've been doing some art uh, projects with a local artist from Wales called Nathan Wyburn, who's a fab guy you can have a look up online. And we are doing something with healthcare staff and some of the 
less pleasant things they've been sent through social media and turning that uh, into uh, a creative output. That will hopefully be released on the 3rd of February, actually, for everybody to see. Um, so that's a project which is uh, keeping keeping us upbeat at the minute. Great. Parker? So um, I think, um, as difficult as it is, I think, uh, you know, in a senior role, you try to be as positive as possible. I think, um, and it's, it's difficult to be incessantly positive in these times. So, but from a national perspective with my role, I've tried to do a lot of uh, recently videos in different languages, encouraging people. I think that's one of the roles I do have to try and be as much possible, you know, helping out with the vaccine program, busting the myths, et cetera, challenging, you know, people as to what may or may not be the right thing. But locally, I think, to be honest, a lot of it has been about morale, little things. I think, um, uh, for example, the consultants got together and brought bought some pizzas in for the whole team. Little things like that matter. And I think people are tired and people need a bit of a break and you can't really meet like you, you could have done at the end of the day. So I think little things um, will make a difference. And I also feel that people should start thinking or at least planning as to how they will take breaks. Something just to put in the diary for later in the year. It doesn't have to be international ones, little ones, little things to look forward to because you know everybody will need downtime because the demand that will come after this. And I just see this, you know, forget everything else, just diabetes. Everybody's already going like, so when does our nine care process start? And you're going like, oh, well, that's going to take some time. You know, GPs are flat out right now doing everything and the vaccine. So I think a lot of things will be about senior leaders making it very clear that there will need to be a bit of downtime because this workforce otherwise will crack because the, the wave that will come after this is not insignificant. Helen. I think the holidays thing is quite a, a good point. And actually, from the point of view of someone trying to keep a show on the road, the real risk is it everybody would like to delay their holidays until we can all have a really good holiday but we can't all do that at the same time um, we're actually trying to encourage people to take some time off now i you know there's nothing to do they think why would i bother but actually unless they do that holiday you know it's going to be really difficult for everyone to to take their leave so that's just a kind of organizational issue um I suppose one of the things that actually is cheering my staff up a lot is participating in vaccine clinics. It's the thing that people want to do. We have we're massively oversubscribed with staff wanting to come in at the weekend to join in the clinic because it is such a, a positive feeling doing it. Everyone is so happy in a vaccine clinic. It's quite hard work, but nobody minds. And it does feel like you're doing something useful, which is which is fantastic. Groundhog Day, I'm just hoping and hoping and hoping we don't have Groundhog Day in the terms of various of us shouting at the radio because they've decided to lift the restrictions too soon or open things up too soon. Just when we were almost going to win, they're going to blow it again. I hope that doesn't happen. I suppose that's my fear. That's my Groundhog Day fear that we'll go round and round in circles because they haven't learned from the summer and the autumn and Christmas and all the other times um, that we just need to hang on in there and don't blow it this time. 
I do have a similar fear that when um, the government talk about, you know, the route out of lockdown, it's just a, a list of when things will open, you know, that, and, and that the necessary work that's needed to to put things in place to really suppress things this time around won't be won't be there. Although they have got this door-to-door testing going on for the South African variant, and, and maybe that's going to be a new model for really intensive um, intensive contact tracing. I, I, I don't know. We, we, have, we have to hope. My thanks to Helen Salisbury, Matt Morgan and Partha Carr. Next week we'll be discussing, among other things, palliative care in patients with COVID-19. Do let us know via Thank social media if you have other topics or questions you'd like us to cover. And do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Goodbye, stay safe and thanks for listening.